Welcome to the Self-Helpful Podcast. I'm Kevin Miller, and this is the podcast people tune into for in-depth discussions on the latest research from our foremost leaders in self-improvement, so you can be growing and more equipped to live at your fullest capacity in body, mind, and soul. Our recent episode series was regarding the longest scientific study ever on happiness, which showcased that our greatest source of happiness comes from relationships. Yet our greatest struggles are often in relationships. So that's where we're going now. If you are in relationship with anyone, you likely have some or a lot of unhealth. So I brought an expert on. A year and a half ago, I had Nedra Glover Tawab on the show for her book, Set Boundaries, Find Peace. This was a look internally at ourselves and shoring up ourselves for good relationships. Now, Nedra has a brand new book that's kind of taken this concept externally. It's called Drama Free, a guide to managing unhealthy family relationships. We dig into the relational issues that we all tend to just settle for and expect we are going to have long term. We just got to endure it or we actually destroy relationships. Nedra Glover Tawab, if you don't know her, she's a New York Times bestselling author, licensed therapist, and sought after relationship expert. She has practiced relationship therapy for 15 years. She's founder and owner of the group therapy practice, Kaleidoscope Counseling. Her expertise is in helping people create healthy relationships by teaching them how to implement boundaries. Her philosophy is that a lack of boundaries and assertiveness underlie most relationship issues, and her gift is helping people create healthy relationships with themselves and others. That's why I had her on the show the first time, boundaries and relational assertiveness. Uh, They've never really existed in me. Nedra has appeared as an expert on Red Table Talk, on The Breakfast Club, Good Morning America, CBS Morning Show. Her work's been highlighted in The New York Times, The Guardian, and Vice. When I had her on the show a year and a half ago, she had about 500,000 followers on Instagram. Today, over 1.6 million people tune in to Instagram and other social media sources for her relationship counsel. I'm honored to have her back for a long journey into the hard relational issues that we seldom reconcile. This is a hopeful episode. And of note, after the one hour mark, we really get into some sensitive topics I don't think you'll want to miss. If you find value from this self-helpful podcast, it'd be great to get your thanks by leaving a review and let people know what you think about the show. Let us know as well. Thing we hope for most though, is that you'll just keep the conversation going, take these topics and talk to them, especially this one with the people that you care about most. You can always connect with me, find me at my website or social media at kevinmiller.co. It's been great to see some inspiring testimonials from some of you this week. Thank you. Next up, Nedra Glover Tawab and I dig into the message and research of her new book, Drama Free, A Guide to Managing Unhealthy Family Relationships. Nedra, it's only been a year and a half since we sat here uh, together talking about your book, Set Boundaries, Find Peace, A Guide to Reclaiming Yourself. And I had you on here just as we were talking a minute ago, because this is the help that I need, but it felt like a looking inward. And then this one with drama free, 
has me feeling a little bit like, okay, I'm working on myself through your first book. And now it's time to look outward and see how I can walk this out in real life. Is that a fair assertion of the two books? Yes. I don't, I don't think they, um, you have to read one to digest the other, but I do think that reading one helps support you with the other book. How did this manifest for you? So you did the first book, a bestseller, great acclaim from that on setting boundaries. And then was it a, an intentional, like you knew this was coming or it's as you continue to watch things unfold, watch the culture say, my gosh, we, we've got to address this in a different flavor, a different voice. Well, so many of the books that we read about family relationships, it's based on a theory. This, your parents is a narcissist. Your parents is, a, they're emotionally unavailable. You're a codependent, you know, like, but, but what do we do with that information? Once we know, okay, I'm codependent. The relationship is in mesh. My family is toxic. How do we live in those relationships with that information? I think that's what we lack. So I have a lot of clients who will read all of the wonderful books available and they still come to therapy because they're looking for tools to apply to those situations because they're not ready to leave the toxic family. They're not ready to end the codependency. They just want to know how to do a little bit better sometimes. And at all levels, we need support with family relationships. So this book came from my work with clients and just thinking about what are things that I talk about all the time? That's how boundaries, you know, came up. It was like, what do I talk about all the time? Oh, boundaries. What else do I talk about all the time? Oh, this, you know, and I think there's a few more in there of what do I talk about all the time that, you know, I think is, is missing that people are still looking to connect the dots of something and they need a resource. I mean, doing this show, I'm blown away at the amount of knowledge I'm exposed to and actually assimilate some. And yet that doesn't mean that I take action on it. So a year and a half later, Nedra, as you're smiling, yeah, I mean, boundaries, it's still the, it's, it's the hardest thing for me to even recognize mm-hmm. when I should and then know how to do it. So I still feel like an infant, but I'm a little better. Uh, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm getting there, but then here, yeah. To know that, okay, let's look at narcissism and read through that and, I, and realize I relate, I relate to a lot of those bullet points on there. That's mm-hmm. what I'm struggling against and to see the relationships I am and, and notice things in other people, but then how to come together. So the show's timely. Nedra right now, because it comes on the heels of a series I just did with Robert Waldinger. He's director of the longest scientific study on happiness at Harvard. So that will have just published right before this is. And of course his, the results, you know, what makes us happy after, I don't, you know, 80 years and two generations, it's relationships. Okay, great. Mm. That's awesome. It's not surprising, but it's great to see that. So here they are. This is what makes us happiest. And yet it's also our greatest struggle. And Mm -hmm. there we have to hold that. That, That's difficult. This is what makes me happy. At the end of the day, it's going to give me fulfillment as relationships. And yet, I mean, is it not the greatest struggle for all of us in our lives is healthy relationships? to say so so many things are related to healthy relationships you know in drama free i mentioned that 
I know when when people come to therapy, they they hate to hear this, but therapists do often ask, what was your childhood like? Mm -hmm. Where did you first experience this feeling? Who was the person who made you feel blank? You know, because those things, they matter. They set the foundation for who we become. And sometimes we're acting out of these things and we don't even remember. You know, you think about trauma like in infants, And when they're like seven, they're doing this stuff, but their body remembers there is like this retaining of what happened that you can't even explain. So that foundation is is really important in who we become. I've I've had clients who are like in their 80s and guess what they're talking about? Childhood. They're talking about family relationships and their relationships with their children. So relationships, it is us. You know, I don't know if we can exist in the world without relationships. You know, some of the saddest movies I ever seen was like, uh, uh, what's the one with Tom Hanks? And he cast away. Oh, right. And he makes a relationship with the ball Mm -hmm. and the other movie with Will Smith and collateral. Oh, or the only person on earth and he has a dog. Legend. Yeah. And he has, he has a relationship with a dog. It's like the whole movie. You're like, I hope he finds someone. <laughs> it's just, we need people. Yeah. And we need those people to be healthy with us. And so it is a huge part of who we are. And without healthy relationships, life is really sad. Well, you talking about trauma. That's been hard for me to, mm-hmm. To embrace. So I'm 52. I would say I'm um, incredibly privileged and also one of those people. And you drew it out in this book, Nedra, that, and I would have thought that I should, I would have known this already, but I was one of those people who said, you know, my childhood, good, bad, whatever, it it was good, but still it was there. I'm Mm -hmm. here. This is me. Okay. I'm, I am a, uh, I'm an independent person and I am me and kind of shunning my childhood to a degree. Again, in my, I had a good childhood, but still I'm me. And you saying that we so often tend to do that to kind of reject our childhood and we can't is what I got out of there. We can't, I mean, as you said, it is a part of us. And I've realized as I, in my own experience and even with others, that it's one thing to reject or, or to say that, hey, it's not a part of me, but even in doing so, it's often from a rejection standpoint, especially those who had a hard childhood. I'm rejecting it, which means by proxy, they are living a life, being a person in opposition to that, which means it still has just as much hold on them as if they said, yeah, I totally embrace it. Is that fair? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's no real rejecting of it. There is a denial of it. There is minimizing it. There is yeah. trying to forget it. But we live the childhood, whether you embrace it or not. You know, when you think about the vices that we have as adults, the way that we treat people, the way that we engage in relationships or we avoid relationships, we're living the childhood trauma, whether you want to acknowledge it or not. So it's always very interesting when people say, I'm unimpacted or I don't want to talk about it. It's like, well, you're living it. That might be the reason that you have struggles with finding a job, maintaining relationships, all of these things that we deal with as adults. It comes from somewhere. We don't create all of it just when we turn 18. A lot of it happens in the in the early stages. I'm curious. Now, I have a book coming out in May and 
we know we do judge a book by its cover. It does matter what the headline is. You know, we've got our content, but we got to choose a headline that's actually going to sell. So with that said, though, I am a little curious about the word drama. There's a lot of titles mm-hmm. you could have given this book. You probably consider a lot of them, but drama free. I think, I mean, for me, I related to it. So it's a relatable term. Should I dig any deeper on why you use that term? You know, I think we were throwing around quite a few terms and I have, I think I may have this text message still, but I have a family member who I was having some relationship issues with. And there was a text that I sent to them is I'm tired of the drama and chaos. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, chaos free, not as catchy. Yeah. (laughs) Drama free. We got something there. We we do. You know, yeah, I I, I think that chaos is drama. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I was just thinking of a word that could capture some of what we experience in our relationships that are unhealthy. It's a lot of chaos and drama. I think there is a hyper focus on the word toxic, you know, Mm -hmm. people not being good for us. And I didn't want to use that in the title. So I was trying to think of a word that could uniquely describe the problems that we have in relationship, because it's not always toxic, right? It could be your, your, you get along with people mostly except for when you have to talk about politics, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe there was no child abuse, but there are new things that that have shown up. You don't like your sister's husband. So there's drama there. So I didn't want to use a word like toxic because that seems so longstanding. Yeah. Like there is some really deep seated issues. And it's it's not always that it's, you know, this person changed their religion and now they're trying to convert everybody. It could be that that could feel like drama to you but it might not be toxic. Well, and to own that, and when we look at the relational struggles and you've got the fight, flight, or fix, you know, concepts, I'm definitely a flight. I'm going to run from it. If it feels like drama, I'm going to, I'm going to tend to naturally, I want to run from it. And I, and I think my tolerance is probably low. So what is maybe not that dramatic feels it, you know, to me, Mm. I have other family members, you know, who feel, who seem drawn towards the drama. I mean, they, I I don't know. I don't even know what to say. I mean, you help me. I don't know if they enjoy it, but they want to, we know that, especially with spouses, you have one who really wants to dig in. Let's fix these things. And and another who's, you know, I just want peace. That's, that is me. I just want peace. And so when we look at drama, I don't want to be unfair in polarizing it, but it feels like I I hear that even amongst friends, amongst married friends a lot, that you often have one who's retreating from anything that feels like drama and they may be overly sensitive to it. And another who's seems to be very drawn to that. Is that common or is it just what we hear about? Pretty common. I wouldn't say that it's some people really like to talk things through sometimes in a productive way and sometimes in a non-productive way. And some people, we just don't want to, you know, I would say I'm more of a retreating person myself that I'm, I'm open. I'm not like conflict avoidant. I like to talk about stuff, but I'm really heavy on action. So now that we've talked about it, we're, we have a resolution. Let's start putting things into practice. 
you know, I'm I'm not one to revisit the same conversations over and over. Like that to me is like that's draining. But I will have, you know, a few talks around the uncomfortable thing. But I do think there are some people who who like a challenge, who like, you know, elevated tones when talking. They do like that sort of dynamic. And it's not necessarily bad, but I do wonder how does it impact that person or how does it impact the relationship? Well, on that, you have me thinking about, I mean, if we look at chronic illness and disease, you know, especially in America, worldwide to some degree, but especially in America, we know it's all getting worse. It's all increasing. You take any pathology, I, I don't know that there's any of them that's not increased as you know other than the ones that we've gotten past like the bubonic plague or something like that everything else though heart disease uh, uh diabetes i mean you go down the list of them, autoimmune issues they're all increasing so it makes i don't want to minimize it. It, it makes sense that you know we are from a mental health standpoint and relationship wise but just as we do with physical maladies, we kind of just accept it. That's just how life is, right? And you take a daily aspirin and ibuprofen and a stack of meds and you kind of deal with the physical side on the same side with relationships. We just kind of expect that's what relationships are. They're messy, they're stressful, and we submit to that. And what I feel, again, you pulling us to is going, this this doesn't just go away. These things manifest and your stress and your anxiety, those aren't benign things. And you actually relate that to the book. I'm going to pull out a line. You're citing that they do more than just emotional damage is what you said, but they influence the heart of all pathology, including cancer, heart disease, depression, anxiety, and addiction. So it really pulls me to looking at, gosh, these stressful relationships, that they're actually hurting my health. And, and I'm mm-hmm. sure the person there, these are not okay. These are going to manifest badly. This is not going to end well. We've got to, well, deal with it. You say manage it. We've got to figure out how to manage it. Yes. Yeah. When I think about addiction, I think mm-hmm. about the AA creed and one of their, one of their things is they don't like you to date in the first year. Why? Oh. You don't have good relationship skills. <laughs> Well, you know, that's it's fair. like that's fair. anything can can trigger you to drink or mm-hmm. use drugs because relationships require a lot of emotional tolerance. And if you don't mm-hmm. have enough time clean, enough support and all these other things, guess what you're going to do when, you know, your partner doesn't call you back or this person breaks up with you or, you know, all of these things, because we don't have the skills necessarily. Now, that's that's very hard to admit. I think in most relationships, we, we repeatedly do things that don't work. All of us. Yeah. To some extent, you know, I'm going to keep yelling at this person. And this time when I yell, they'll get it. Right, it's like the right. yelling hasn't worked. Right. <laughs> you know, it's like. I'm going to, you know, like we, we do these things and they don't work. And, it, and, and for we, me, it would be silence. The silence, the withdrawal doesn't work. Never has, never going to, it's it still where I revert to, but yeah. Okay. It, it, it doesn't work. And so you, you have these, these maladaptive skills yeah. that you're trying to use, but we, really what we need to do is build our relationship skill foundation. Because many of us, we don't know. And here's the thing. Different things work for different people. There may be some situations where 
yelling is helpful. I don't know. It's not helpful in your situation. It hasn't been helpful in your situations. There are times I remember I I went to Detroit public schools and when a teacher yelled, it was like, they're serious. You know, so it was effective. It was like, okay, she really may sit down now. Now, I'm not saying teachers go yell. I'm not saying yell at your partners, but. I think the strategic yell every once in a while to, to some kids in a rowdy classroom, it worked. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I think sometimes we will apply things in all areas. We'll apply them to situations that they don't fit because there is this discomfort with maybe trying something new or doing something different or even we don't know the skill. And so when, you know, going back to I kind of went on a tangent there, but going back to relationships impacting our health, new research is saying that loneliness will cause more deaths than heart disease, than cancer, than all these other things, because we have no connection to people. I think the pandemic certainly increased that. I listened to a podcast with this guy. He was like in his 80s. He said that he has a group of male friends. They've been friends 20 or 30 years and they don't talk about anything of significance. It's not very emotionally connected. Mm -hmm. He feels very lonely in his relationships. How does that, you know, impact us? We don't have anyone. When we have a hard day, guess what we have to do? Suck it in. We don't have anybody to talk to. We don't have anyone who understands us. It's very important that, you know, relationships are not just like, oh, my gosh, I need to get some relationships, but that we know how to maintain them. Mm-hmm. Your statement on loneliness, Nedra, it's been a while. At some point I was looking up stats and within chronic illness, talking about diseases of despair as not the biggest, you know, pathological category, but the fastest growing Mm -hmm. at the time. And I would, I I wouldn't be surprised if that's still the case. And is that what you would say? Those things, those diseases of despair, depression and, you know, suicide, apathy, et cetera, are primarily, I mean, how would they not be related to relationships? I don't know a lot of people who say, gosh, I'm depressed because I don't hear the other circumstances. Maybe they might cite that, but at the end of the day, it feels like, no, they're from relationships. Is that what your Mm -hmm. perspective would be as well? Yeah, not all the time. I think, you know, some, certainly there are many factors to depression, but relationships can be a factor. I think it's, something we need to look into more and we don't we don't have the language around it necessarily yeah. we don't have exposure to it because it's a taboo thing i mean you know who's having conversations around like i'm so lonely and depressed because i don't have a healthy relationship with my children but that you know so much of this book is about the shame mm-hmm. of this family stuff admitting that these things really exist, that, you know, sometimes people don't have healthy relationships with their children. And that's a hard thing to admit because it, it, it can seem like, you know, maybe you did something and maybe you did. What do we do with that information? You know, I think there's an opportunity for growth there. I think there is room for improvement. I think there are, you know, ideas about how we could reconnect. But with, but first, we must acknowledge that something is happening. 
in our relationships. Now you talk about that too, Nedra, because you know, a lot of people will hear that and go, gosh, okay, it just feels bad to go try to, you know, dredge up the past and to make it negative and go back into the childhood and the propensities go back and just, you know, it was, it was fine. My parents are doing the best they could or my parent or whoever, and, you know, siblings doing the best they could. And just to put it down and then the danger it feels like is to hear you and go, okay, now I'm supposed to go back and just vilify it. But you talked to that in the book. Mm -hmm. No, that's not the point, but I'll let you finish what it is. I wonder where do we get this idea that talking about anything honestly is vilifying it? Yeah. I say, yeah, I say, yeah, but that's been me too. So please I'm getting school me. Yeah. There, there is this misconception that if we say anything that's not happy or I don't know, neutral, like I'll have so many clients who will preface something bad with something very good. I love my mom. She is the best person ever. She worked really hard for me and my siblings. Um, they go on this whole tangent about how great she she is to say that she's an alcoholic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> my mother, you know, she she really was mean to my father or whatever those things are. It's like, okay, so wait, you had to tell me she was in the church choir. She sold your costumes for <laughs> you're like all of this wonderful stuff to get to the nitty gritty of the reason that you're here. Because there is something in us that says, I shouldn't talk about her like this. Nedra, this is what, what is that? My, my therapist has called me out on this over and over and over. So you, the, yeah. I can't say anything. I can't share the negative feeling or emotion about whoever until I first say, well, either something good about them or I have to point out my own flaws first. I know I did this. I know I did this to get to X. So yeah, you just, you just nailed me. Keep going. I, I just wonder, um, sometimes I think it, it feels like betrayal, right? Yeah. Like to say something negative about someone you love. Mm-hmm. But what I try to normalize is love is not a protection from hurt. Love is not a protection mm-hmm. from abuse. Love is not a protection from conflict. Love is not, you know, so I I think we try to put those things all together. And if I love someone, then they have to be perfect. We are loving imperfect people. So they have some stuff. Well, but doesn't it come from a self-interested standpoint? I want to be such a good husband, such a good father, whatever, that pretty much everybody's good with me. That I'm, mm-hmm. that I'm, I mean, and that's, we're getting into my childhood now. You know, I'm going to earn, that's what I embrace. I'm going to earn the admiration, affection, affirm, everything, all the A's. And I still want that. And so then to come up with a criticism, Ooh, I, I don't, I don't have space for that because I'm trying to earn those good things. Cause of course, you know, my self-worth is not inherently just inside of me. It hasn't been, it's getting there. Uh, Mm -hmm. but yeah, that makes sense. So for me then to turn the tables and to say something negative is, is counterintuitive to what I want for myself. Maybe I'm not alone in that. What you want and what you have are two different things. Okay. You're speaking in wishes, right? I want this. This is, it's, it's basically telling 
a therapist or a friend or whoever, this is how I want you to see this person. I want you to see them as this great, wonderful thing Mm -hmm. and this little tiny problem that they have or this little tiny thing that I do to them that makes them do this mean thing to me. And I don't know how healthy that is for you. I think we can say bad things about people without, and I don't even say bad things. I think we can be honest about people without being angry at them. I have a lot of compassion for people who have hurt me Hmm. because I know it takes a lot of things to happen in your life for you to get to the space of hurting another person. Hmm. So I have a lot of compassion for that. I'm 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 not out here like, you know what? I I have no list. I don't have a list of, oh, I want them to get hurt. No. I hope they heal. I hope they get better. I hope that they treat, you know, other people in the future well. Yeah. I'm not angry, but the truth of it is is this thing. And that that is okay. That's actually a part of life. I would be out of a job if if everybody had a perfect life, right? <laughs> right? right so I, I I work because of human imperfection. I have a job because of that. So there is, you know, there is no universe, no world we can live in with perfect people. And so a lot of the imperfect figures, it's us. Yeah, it's it's our family members, it's our partners, it's it's everybody doing something. That's why I'm I'm often shocked by harsh judgment of people. Because I'm like, are you not human? (laughs) It's like, I can't believe they lied. Tell me about the last time you lied. Mm -hmm. Was it yesterday? (laughs) I mean, it's like, we, we all do these things. But when other people do these things, it's like the worst thing ever, ever. You know, and even if we don't do the things, we can't even step outside of our story to understand why a person becomes a certain way. There is a, you know, there's a lot of, you know, I like to watch a lot of documentaries. Right now I'm watching Madoff. Um, But when you watch all of these different documentaries and read all of these autobiographies, there are so many things that get people to the whether it's a good thing or a bad thing or they do this terrible thing. There are so many things that happen. So it's not like, you know, they just woke up and said, you know what, I want to be a mean and awful human being. That's not usually the case. It's. It's typically them trying to get a need met, whether that need is for admiration, whether that need is for power, whether and a lot of us have that. You know, you just said, I want to be admired. Now, you may not take advantage of people to be admired, but you'll say nice things about them when it's not deserved. That is true. Yeah. Yeah. So some of those things, you know, it's just it's like maybe it's in us to some extent and some people it's in them to a higher (laughs) extent. Right. 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 I mean, you talking about childhood, you know, Nedra, I I, you mentioned the skills that we learn in childhood, um, whether they are to protect us or to get those a words that after those affirmations, whatever they are, that we learn those in childhood and they may, well, you talked about yelling, you know, there may be a place on the playground with kids where that, you know, that's, that's relevant, but we have those skills in childhood that we learn and they may have served us well then. And we take those then into adulthood. 
and they don't serve us so well. And that's what I have you know, found it. Even, even the things that we do out in the workplace. Well, I guess we talked before the show here. I was a pro cyclist. Endurance is great. Ignoring the pain is great. Mm-hmm. I took that into relationships. It doesn't work so well there. And yet, so I, you get applause for it out here in the workplace. Doesn't work here. And it feel, it can feel a little, maybe that's, that's an unhealth of mind speaking, but it can feel kind of schizophrenic even of going, man, out here, I'm going to show no emotion. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to steer the ship, no matter the stormy waters. And that's great. It may even have a place for it with my family. If there was a, a fire we had to escape from, but that's not the day to day. The day to day is intimate. It's not highly traumatic generally, you know, for, for our, our families, as, as for most people here and here, here in this, hopefully. And yet again, those skills there don't tend to work. I, I know for my part, I've had to really look at that and realize that that skill that seemed so valuable just doesn't work over here. Kind of makes sense. But to break from that, from that programming back to the childhood programming, it feels like I need to be re re brainwashed in essence. Mm. Well, not necessarily re brainwashed, but reprogrammed. Okay. There is some new programming that we, we need some of the things that we learn are protective at that time. And we have to figure out, do we still need that skill? Um, is it something we need to just kind of stick in our back pocket for times that we need it? Yeah. Is it, is it something that we just need to leave all together? You know, some folks grow up in terrible family situations and they have to do um, some unfortunate things to survive those situations. And I think it becomes problematic when you're still doing those things to survive and you don't have to, right? It's like that could have, you know, really been needed in your home environment, but that skill isn't needed here. You have your book in three parts. Unlearning dysfunction, number one, healing, and then growing. And, you know, as I looked at, even in the intro in your book, it just brought me back to step one. Isn't, I'll ask, you know, is step one is still, in essence, an auditing of myself. Kind of the, my, my, my first therapist I ever had, it was, and I had the first two say the same thing that Kevin, you, you're emotional. You're not aware of your emotions. They gave me the little sheet with an emotional dashboard. That's where it started. You know, now today we've got Brene Brown's book, Atlas of the Heart with 87 emotions, I believe is what she lists out and the call to understand those and have a better understanding of self. And so as we look at the, you know, at the drama and I come to grips with, okay, where is the drama in my life? Where are the things, the relational issues that are gnawing away from me? It calls me first to say, for me to be in touch with my emotions. Maybe that's the question. Can we even do this if we are not to some degree adequately in touch with what we are honestly feeling. Mm-hmm. That's the unlearning part because we're human. I think we naturally feel that's what separates us from others in the animal kingdom. I think we, we are feeling beings and it's not that we don't feel it's like we've bypassed that. You know, I have two children, six and nine. And 
they talk about feelings all the time. Hmm. That hurt. I'm anxious. I'm nervous. Um, that was mean. I'm excited. I'm happy all the time. I encourage it because I don't want them to lose that skill because I know so many adults, if you say, how do you feel? They can't tell you. A lot of that is because, you know, when we're children, people talk us out of feeling they it's not that serious. That's not that big of a deal. You could wait to go to the bathroom. (laughs) You know, all of these. It's like I have to go now. But it's that endurance, you know, tolerate the pain of are taught. And so the the messenger becomes us. Now we're telling ourselves, I shouldn't feel this. It's not okay to think this about this person. It's not okay to say this. Why am I even bothered? It's not a big deal. Why do I? Now we're telling ourselves all of the messages that the people told us. Yeah. And then we have to, like you mentioned, going to therapy and then the therapy is like, okay, let's look at a feelings chart. <laughs> because now we want you to go back to five years old. <laughs> we want you to be able to say, that's mean. That was frustrating. I feel lonely. I'm sad about this. We want you to be able to do that. That was a very healthy skill, Kevin. Why did they tell you not to do that? Yeah. Because it was advantageous for them in that moment. Because it, it worked best if you were in a box, if you were a certain type of way, just be quiet, sit here, do this, do that. It worked best. So it makes sense for, you know, someone to say, you not right now. This is how you should feel. I'm in the middle of this. Go over here. How do we continue that messaging of, I don't have time to feel, hurry yourself along, quickly get over it. We do that to ourselves as adults. Yeah. It's interesting you citing your children sharing their feelings um, very naturally and openly. I have my children do, uh, but I'll say it's my biological children uh, do. My youngest is adopted. She's 10 years old. She's been with us since she was four. And prior to that, she had a lot of abuse and neglect. She does not, um, literally not a part of her vernacular, how she feels. She... Mm -hmm. Doesn't she's embarrassed when she's hurt? She's better than she used to be, but she's embarrassed when she's hurt. She tries to hide it uh, when she's. I mean, she's got a cut. She's bleeding, and she's she's her biggest emotion is guilt. Is what we learned with her. She's in therapy with that. But interesting that would you say that that the more traumatized someone is, the less is it the less we understand our emotions because you just have to shut them down. So that's just it's not a logical intentional process. It's hard to feel when you're in a crisis. Can you imagine like being in a house fire and being like, how do I feel about this house fire? It's it's like you're in a house fire. Just get out of there. I think with trauma, a lot of the the experiences just get out of there, just survive it, just get through the day, just get through the it's, it's so much chaos that it's just just get through, just get through, just get through. And once we get to a point where, huh, wow, I'm safe now, I can feel everything mm-hmm. that that is the new work to notice, OK, I'm no longer 
in the trauma cycle. I am no longer in an unsafe environment. I can really feel what's happening now. When I moved to Charlotte from Detroit, I had a heightened sense of security because I was moving from Detroit. And in Detroit, you put this club on your steering wheel to make sure no one steals your car. You put the one on your brake pedal to your steering wheel to make sure nobody steals it. You certainly lock all of your doors. You don't go to this place at nighttime, like all these safety rules. When I moved to Charlotte, I remember someone getting in my car and being like, what's that? I'm like, a club? <laughs> and they were like, what is it for? And I'm like, oh my gosh, like, where where have you been? <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, you know what? We don't need this here. We don't even need this here. Like, why do I still have it? So I got rid of, I mean, I even had the thing in your house. You push it up to your doorknob so people can't kick your door. All the stuff. Wow. But it's like, I didn't need it anymore. So it did take a little while for me to unravel. Like, I don't need this heightened sense of safety anymore. I'm safe. The dysfunction, I think this is a, I think I pulled this right out of your book. If I didn't, maybe I paraphrased a little bit. That whatever the dysfunction is that we encounter, just like you talked about there in Detroit, where security is an issue, we adjust to it. It becomes our norm and maybe to have compassion on ourselves. It has to, again, back to childhood, whatever happened, you had to, you didn't have a choice. You didn't ask to be put in that situation. You had to, but now it's the norm. And then when you leave that to realize that's a great depiction you just gave that that does not have to be my norm anymore. And to, and to, I guess, back to what we talked a little bit ago to admit that 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 probably wasn't okay. That what Mm -hmm. happened back there was not Okay, so I'm not going to allow that anymore, and that is not the norm. But again, we're back to what you said a minute ago, not rebrainwashing, but reprogramming, because just because you stopped using the club doesn't mean that you don't have that fear or doubt when you leave the car or don't Mm -hmm. put the stick up to your house. That probably Mm -hmm. took quite a bit longer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I definitely I don't feel it as much anymore. But even, you know, you, you kind of go through this this deprogramming phase. Those first few days, is my car still there? Oh, the car is still no one took the car and it didn't have a club on it. Wow. <laughs> it's, it's like shock of safety almost. Right. Um, so, yeah, I think we have to allow ourselves that that reflection period, that adjustment period to get used to a new sense of safety. And that happens often in relationships. When you go from a traumatic relationship to a safe one, Mm -hmm. and you're still using a lot of those trauma protection practices, like maybe not feeling, not being open about your feelings, not talking about yourself very much. And you're in a safe environment. But, you know, many of us will still will still use that. I've, I've you know, I've done a lot of work with couples and it's really hard to see a person's marriage end because they refuse to be emotionally available. They just can't do it because of all of that early programming. It's like I just. I hear them saying all I have to do, but it, it is the hardest thing to do when you have, you know, significant trauma. So something you pull out in your book, Nedra, that I'll admit I studied for my own book. 
was I'm going to call it genetic set points because it's just mm-hmm. something that never was again relevant for me. And as I've talked to people, it, most people don't think of as well. We think about genetics in regards to a yeah propensity for a physical ailment or a disease, something like that. But in regards to our response in relationships, uh, I don't, I haven't found it to be the norm and it wasn't for me to look at, cause I'm just going to generally look at my own childhood and go, gosh, you know what? It was pretty good. I, I really don't see why I have this unhealthy reaction to certain relational aspects. I just can't find a place for it experientially in my childhood. And now what you bring us to if, however, if my grandparents, if my, you know, the people who came before that endured uh, a significant amount of trauma that can give us literal genetic set points that don't, you know, like any, they don't, um, uh, they don't imprison us. It's kind of the, I always forget who to attribute it to, you know, genetics doesn't, uh, pull, it loads the gun. It doesn't, uh, but our lifestyle pulls the trigger. But in that, is that, tell us, tell me a little more about that, about the aspect of, okay, just because I don't see X, Y, Z as a causation in my childhood, it could be from prior to that genetically that I have a sensitivity to X because it existed here. That's not Mm -hmm. common. That's not common knowledge. Yeah. I I think the example I mentioned in the book was relation to Holocaust survivors and and descendants of slavery and how there is this trauma that is in your genetics and you have these heightened stress points. You have a higher propensity to have certain issues because of not your grandparents necessarily, but your maybe your great-grandparents and your great-great-grandparents. And there is something about what happened to them that continues to happen to us until it's, it's almost like doing some of the healing heals your lineage as well. Right. Yeah. You know, like it is when you think about a mother carrying a child, they say, Oh, emotionally, you have to be very sensitive to what you allow in because you're, you're literally building a person and you're creating like this environment for them. And some of the things that happen with you happens to this child. And so we're, we're constantly building, you know, um, these families with all of this, I don't want to say DNA, but yes, this, this genetic pattern of pockets of trauma. And the more that we individually heal, the better our children will be and our our grandchildren and our great grandchildren, and we're, we're reconstructing yeah. our bloodline in some ways. But Nedra, the the example I used in my book, and I'm going to do a bad job of paraphrasing it exactly, but it was a scientific study on a guy who shocked mice. You know, like if mm-hmm. this was present, oh, it was the it was the smell of. Um, I don't think it was chloroform. It's something that smells like blueberries, some chemical that smells like blueberries. So uh, they Mm -hmm. would present the smell and shock the mice. So they did that over and over. And of course, you know, we know what happened to the mice. They're scared to death of that smell. That's that's easy to understand. What was mind blowing was then for those mice to have babies and see the baby's natural aversion to that smell of blueberries. So here's a blueberry Mm -hmm. substance that the mice should come right to and their aversion that that blew me away. So that again, that that programming, like you said, I don't want to say it's in your DNA, but that that propensity can come from a, 
I don't know, an, an emotional wiring? Is that the best we can? Yeah. And, you know, I think one of the things that, that isn't talked about enough is environmental wiring. Yeah. When you don't see anyone knowing how to deal with emotions, that's how you learn how to deal with emotions, whatever they're doing. You know, I, I, I cited Depression is Contagious, which is a book that is very interesting about how children become depressed, not necessarily genetically, but being in a depressed home. Yeah. You learn depression. You learn to maybe stay in your room, stay in the bed. Um, when you have a hard day, like you, you, you withdraw from people. Like you're learning, you're visually seeing all of these cues. And then guess what? You start to learn, like when I am feeling this, this is what I do. It's, you know, it's the same way with, you know, sometimes with anxiety, when you see parents and they're afraid of an animal and they grab their kid, guess what? Their kid is like, oh, dog. Yeah. <laughs> I, I once asked a little kid, I said, what is your experience with a dog? He was like four. And he was like, dogs bite you. I said, have you ever been bitten by a dog? He's like, no. But the mother she was so afraid of a dog. She had some story, but I'm like, now this kid has doesn't even have a story. Yeah. <laughs> but because he's witnessing the parents' response to the dog, it's like now I have dog trauma. So we we sometimes just pass things on, not knowing. You know, I think about anxiety is a really big one. When clients present with anxiety, I always say, who in your family has anxiety? And they're like, oh, I don't know anybody with anxiety. Okay, think about your mother, your father. Did they worry about stuff? Oh, they did always say, oh, don't do that or stop doing this. Oh, if you go over here. oh, da, da. Okay, they couldn't sleep. They couldn't, you know, like all of this stuff. And it's like, okay, so now we have a family history. <laughs> yeah. So all of that stuff is little seeds being planted. It's teaching you to worry about stuff. It's teaching you to worry about flying. It's teaching you to worry about having enough money. It's teaching you to worry about this person is constantly saying this stuff. Can you imagine for 18 years, someone saying this planting all of these anxious little seeds. And then you're supposed to leave the house and be like, well, no anxiety. Nedra, it doesn't that, work that way. It do, well, and I'm <laughs> I'm I'm living I'm living that in all truth. Um, and it's not even from. I don't think. I mean, I don't see it from trauma. So, so me as a as a man, <clears throat> as a human, and my and my wife too would be the typical you know high achiever type A whatever. We just say yes and we take on a lot. We've got nine kids. We you know I've always had multiple businesses. I just. I just like to run kind of high. That's kind of my happy place. Maybe from, uh, I had somebody on recently and uh, talking about ADHD and just, they said excessive busyness is just kind of my comfort zone. And I, not in a, not in a happy, no, not in, in gladness, but I realized that's my tendency to go to. So mm -hmm. my kids have seen that. So not from even a worry standpoint, but I, I, I would put that in the frame of chaos that they've seen that, mm -hmm. that that's what I do. And to see them now dealing with anxiety and me wondering, where's it coming from? And I hear you and I'm not just ripping on myself, but I, I taught them well. And in the book, you, I don't know if it's fair to say a definition, but 
it was in that first uh, part one dysfunction and you, the three de- definitions you gave or depictions was abuse, chaos, and neglect. Mm-hmm. So Ned, what it made me think of, I remember a pastor one time, long time ago, but he did a sermon on our series on the 10 commandments and he ultimately broke them down. And he says, in essence, we all violate these every day to some degree. Mm-hmm. Murder is not just decapitating someone. There's different levels into some, it was really, um, it, it wasn't like a, a berating type thing, but just kind of a, you know, having compassion on ourselves and others that we all break these things every day. So in the same sense, as I'm looking at dysfunction and thinking about, you know, what are the, what are the different forms of abuse? It's not just smacking my kid or, you know, my wife or whatever. There's different levels. How about chaos? Man, that can come in a lot of different forms. Neglect. I mean, definitely with the things that I don't embody, like emotional intelligence so well, haven't, Mm -hmm. have I neglected my children with that? Absolutely. There's no way I couldn't. Um, So it may not be a traumatic, abusive type thing, but it's a form of neglect that they have received. And you even talk about that as you talk about childhood, that there are the things that we experience that affected us, but there's also the dramatic amount of things that we didn't get to experience that we're lacking from too. So there's, again, how can we not have different aspects, even in the best of places of neglect and chaos and abuse? Is that going too far or is that relevant? I think that's relevant. And I think it takes a brave parent to acknowledge that's true. I think I am doing my best job with parenting and I'm always prepared to have difficult conversations because my kids already have them. You're doing this. You're not doing that. I'm like, oh my gosh, I thought I was doing an excellent job. <laughs> I'm not doing an excellent job. And, yeah. you know, I go in my little closet and cry, but yeah, you know, I try to do better. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, so, so wait, I have blind spots. Because what I'm doing is what I think is important. They have a different idea of the things that they may need or want. And so there are times when, you know, I might be functioning well in, you know, five areas. And it's this one little area of you didn't take my earrings out. That's like super like you said you would do it this time and you don't listen to me. And it's, and they got five other times I didn't listen. I'm like, gosh, those are all pretty relevant. <laughs> it is. I mean, so, so much we've spent so much time really talking about, again, the, the essence of the part one of just coming to grip. That's my term coming to grips with and accepting mm-hmm. and acknowledging that none of us grew up in a perfect home. None of us had perfect parents and to the best of them out there, there were, there had to be some voids. If it wasn't dramatically abusive on that side, even on the good side, I mean, sometimes I, I look and go, my, my incredible parents, I don't even know if they put high expectations on me, but they applauded me for them. And so I just embraced that. That's who I am. It's not their fault. Um, I, you know, it fit my propensity and I kind of, I took that and, and hook, line, sinker and just went that way. Not their fault. But again, coming to grips and going, yeah, there were some things that we can't have perfect health. So, you know, there's part one of the book is kind of getting real with it. Then part two is the healing kind of where you talked about at the beginning. Now, what do we do with it? So we've got this knowledge, but mm-hmm. what do we do? Because we're going to quit listening to this podcast and we're going to answer the texts from our family and go home to our family or, or respond to our relationships or our lack thereof relationships. We're going to go home and be alone and we're going to deal with it. How do we 
heal those relationships. And that to me is, I mean, the, the biggest elephant in the room for me, Nedra, in reading, not in reading the book, but just in considering, okay, what do I do this? Is we, we don't want to generally engage. We don't want to hurt the other person or be hurt in return. So when we're looking at it and going, yeah, that doesn't feel good. We don't, it's, that's, that's so scary, even though, and I'll, again, I'll own this for myself, even though I say it's so scary and I don't even know why. I don't know why I'm not going to get physically harmed generally, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not at least in, in the relationships that I have. Why is it so scary for us? Why are we so even again, even from a non-traumatic life possibly, or a lesser traumatic life that relationships and really coming together and dealing with it is so, it can just be terrifying. Because we care about them. Okay. I think we really care. We want to be like, we don't want people to leave us. And sometimes we think that if we say things, they'll say, okay, I'm done. I'm not your mom anymore. (laughs) If you don't want me to come over unannounced, I won't be your mother anymore, (laughs) which I think is a very extreme (laughs) way to respond. And, And most likely not the case. You know, there may be some awkwardness. There may be a little bit of discomfort. But for the most part, we are just teaching people who we are. I am very different than how I was when I was 12 years old or 15 years old, 18, 25, you know, any age, you know, even last year. You know, there are different things about me. So as I as I evolve I have to let people know that there are different things that I eat. You know, when I was a kid, I ate a lot of bologna and, you know, all of this stuff. Now, if someone say, hey, you want a bologna sandwich? No way. (laughs) No way. No way. I would eat it. (laughs) I've had enough. (laughs) Uh So it's it's okay for me to to let people know who I am today. And so some of that is having some uncomfortable conversations with people around. Ah, yeah, I I did say that five years ago, but you know what? Now here's the thing, or, you know, sometimes I'm really bothered by like, you know, just, just having those conversations are really a way to restore a relationship, not a way to tear it down or mess it up. It's just like, you know, I'm challenged by something. But if we hide all of the challenges, we make no room for growth. Yeah. I mean, in managing these relationships then, I mean, you just talked about having those uncomfortable conversations, which I, th- I think, you know, anybody listening to the show, they're going to understand that there's a need for that. Help me. And this is super, I feel like it's super elementary. I'm almost embarrassed to ask it, but it still comes to a, a crux of hesitancy or, or maybe it's confusion even Nedra. And again, I'll own this just for myself. So having these uncomfortable uh, conversations, having boundaries, you know, your first book, the focus of your first book, and yet your statement that you make a lot in here is we cannot in we cannot period, or we cannot at least go into it endeavoring to change the other person. Mm-hmm. So it pulls on the question. I'm having this uncomfortable conversation, excuse me, not to change the other person in essence, but there is a hope that in our relational dynamics, we 
modify our behaviors to a degree mm-hmm. where we can coexist? Yeah, we're modifying our behaviors all the time. When you think about, you know, having to go to a library, you get a little quiet. Does that mean you're always a quiet person? No, but you're in the library. <laughs> Yeah. So it's 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 possible for our for us to modify behaviors. It doesn't mean that I am always the type of person who always speaks in my library voice. It just means that this is what this situation um, requires for me. So we 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 can in some ways be mindful of people. Like you know, I, I think sometimes when I when I have friends over and I cook certain meals, I try to think about okay, who's vegetarian here? Right, right? I'm not vegetarian, but I certainly want to have a few options for this person because I want to make sure that they feel comfortable here. Would I have this if they weren't here? No, but I do want to make that adjustment. Am I saying every day I need to have these options in my home? No, but I I want to be in this relationship with you. I'm not changing myself. I'm just trying to accommodate you some so you can be happy. Okay. Can we dig in right there? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, we, I don't know where it comes from, but it feels like we all have this innate, I mean, you and I are sitting here talking and we are. I mean, this is a happy place for me. I'm not stressed. I'm not anxious. We're having a conversation. This is this is almost flow uh, for me. But I'm I'm kind of on my good behavior. There's some performance here. I'm trying to talk well and to think well and converse well and sit up straight and project my voice well. And I'm doing that. Okay, so we're doing that. We're out in the workplace. We're with other people, and yet that propensity to come home and go. Ugh, let the hair down, kick the shoes off, burp, you know, whatever it may be. And just, can I just be me? You know, I'm done. T- man, I've been doing that. I've been doing the thing all day. Can I just be me? So we all understand that. My concern though, is when we get in that relationship, we think now I want to be in that relationship where I don't have to modify myself at all. I want to be with my soulmate where I can just be me. And I don't, is that I don't, I don't know that that's possible. You tell me you're the therapist. This is your, this is your, this is your path here. I mean, can we just be, I mean, there's, cause there's always, if it's another person, they have needs, sensitivities, they have stuff. How can I not still modify, like you said, to maybe not change them, but am I going to care enough to accommodate? And just because I might like to burp out loud, it's a goofy analogy, but you know, they, that may be offensive to them. They may have gotten slapped for doing that as a kid. So maybe just don't do that. Oh, but then I can't be me. Where's I I see this walking out. I just want to just love. Can I just be me? Can you just love me for being me? And I'm thinking about even my kids. Can I love you? Just be, yeah, but right now I don't like you. You're being a jerk. Mm -hmm. So if, yeah. There's some harmony between just being me and being in relationships with other people. I would say, you know, for some things we need to just be ourselves and go do it in the bathroom. Okay. You know, there, there, are, there are some things that, you know, I, I think about these huge rifts in parent-child relationships. And a really big one is when a child is gay, lesbian, trans, or, you know, something that a parent may say, oh, my gosh, this is something that I have an issue with. And... In that case, no, I I think that child should be able to be themselves. 
right? Like I wouldn't say, you know, hey, pretend when you come over here to be something else. It's like, no, I, I think you should be able to be yourselves. Now, if you're talking about you know, making maybe smaller modifications, like I mentioned, like, you know, being considerate of other people. I think that's something altogether different. I think you could, you are yourself, whether or not you're burping, <laughs> you know, like right. that's not changing who you are. That's changing a thing that you do, but it's not changing who you are. There are some things that relationship wise, we may try to change who we are that is very problematic and unsafe for us. And that's different from trying to accommodate the needs of another person in a relationship. And I think there are some things we do in relationships because we want to be in them. And there are certain things that we're just unable to do. You know, I, I, I think, you know, talking about certain topics, if you have a certain family member who has fertility issues, do you want to talk to that family member about it? And, you know, like, do you do you want to be aggressive with what you say to them? Do you want to tell them what to do? You know, I I think those things matter. They are delicate things that we have to do in our relationships with people. You can have your perspective about things, but how do you explore those in relationships with people? Do you, I, I think that's the consideration that we're not often giving. It's like, well, this is what I think about this. And I have to tell this person. It's like, maybe not. You know, I, I, I think it would be better to maybe say it this way or word it this way. You know, this person is already going through something. Do you want to state your stance on adoption? Like, is this right. I'm more or place to do that? Those are the considerations that we maybe need to think of that we sometimes we just we don't because we feel like I can say whatever I want to because this is me. And it's like, yeah, speaking your voice all the time, it might leave you without some relationships because certain people may not want to hear it. How, okay, can I ask this then? That idea of can I just be, I mean, you know that this is, you know, the movie fantasy of finding that perfect person, right? That we just fall head over in heels in love with. They're our soulmate and that that Hollywood depiction of the fantasy there. Someone I can be fully myself with. I It, it, it bothers me a little bit, Nedra, and I want your take mm-hmm. on it. That is that fair? Because how could I be... Hmm. How could I uh, uh, express every part of me to one person? My wife, for instance, has not been a man. She's not been a <laughs> husband. Um, she's not. She's not done a lot of things, and, and vice versa. I, I can't for her to express and have me relate to childbirth. I just. I just haven't done it. I've never grown a human within me. And I'm, I'm trying to take an exaggerated aspect, but for her to try to be herself and relate, have someone relate to her and how it feels and the, you know, the aspects of motherhood, man, I can't do it, but she's got a mother. She's got a sister. She's got girlfriends that she can do that with me. Now that's one depiction, but to take something where somebody maybe has a sensitivity. Yeah. You talking about, you know, fertility and somebody who wants to go on and on and just talk about the joy of, of, of motherhood to their friend who's 
really suffering in infertility mm-hmm. and, and that to maybe say, you know what, you, you can be you and be excited about it. Why don't you be excited about that with this person over here who has five kids, mm-hmm. not with them. And so it's not even modifying ourselves. It's just, again, back to your accommodating, being sensitive to who are we with. And, but then I'm going to, again, just to rub that a little bit to say, is it viable that maybe we can't just fully be every aspect of ourselves with any one person? Cause it's really hard for any one person to really have every experience and to connect with us in every way. Thoughts? Absolutely. Okay. We need a community of people to be in relationship with, you know, we need partners, friends, family members, children, church members, uh, mosque members, <laughs> like we need an assortment, neighbors down the street, guy at the grocery store. We need an assortment of people because we have so much going on that, yeah, I think about the friends we meet along the way, right? When you have like a very unique situation, you're you're dropping, you know, you're 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 having some health issue and this other person is having the same health issue. That's a connection that you can't find with anyone else. Yeah. You know, like this is this is a very unique connection and you don't have to expect that your wife will understand the uniqueness of your health issue yeah. <laughs> like that's and and sometimes we'll get mad at folks oh my gosh they don't understand this about me and it's like yeah it's not their thing and that's why we need more than one person so we're not putting everything on this one person to get it again it, yeah, it's interesting even thinking amongst my friends that there are somewhere I am going to go and we bond over talking about entrepreneurship, running our own businesses, doing our own thing, even be an artist to that, to a degree. And we talk about that. I don't talk about to my friend over here. Who's been an employee somewhere for 30 years. He just doesn't have that experience. Mm -hmm. Why would I talk to Mm -hmm. him about that? No different than I'm getting ready to go on a trip with 12 guys who are all athletes. So we're going to go and we're going to just do some cool stuff that I don't share with a lot of other people in my life, you know, some, even some of my kids and, and and whatnot, but I'm going to revel in that. We're going to talk about that as context that I don't have with other people. And I can take that to, I have friends who aren't husbands, who aren't fathers, who aren't X, Y, Z that again, to be fully me to to express that. um, Yeah. To be sensitive to who I had, I had somebody say one time, I'm going to honor, I'm going to honor the house I'm in. I'm going to honor the house I'm in. And so if I go in and they're good with tracking mud all over, then I'll do that. If they take their shoes off the front, I'm going to to honor the house I am to look at every person. Is that a good frame of reference and say, man, I'm going to, I need to understand them enough Mm -hmm. to honor who they are. And, and again, it's not that we are being inauthentic, but there may be some aspects of us that aren't relevant to express to that person. Mm -hmm. I love that. I, I, I don't think of that as a withholding. I think that that's a honoring multiple truths and we need people in, in different spaces in our life. We don't need them to, to be everything. We need them to be a few things, but not every single thing to us. An anchor issue in the book, Nedra was, I think this is in the latter parts of the book or at least chapter two or or part two, how to manage relationships with people who won't change. Mm -hmm. That right there is going to be 
as you know, a hot ticket for, for most everyone. And I really appreciate you start right off and you relate it to a neighborhood that here you are, you've got your home, you've got your land, but there's people around you and there may be people who, in essence, let their property just go to pot mm-hmm. and to decide if, and now I'm going to play with, with some of it in my own paraphrasing. Cause I want your input that I can look at that. Well, one, I can choose to, I can then look across the street to them or look next door to me and I can live in anger, bitterness, resentment, hate, and just try to deal with it and just say, that's it. Life sucks kind of aspect, you know, or just, you know, you got to deal with it. Not very healthy, probably is not going to endure well, and it's going to manifest in in bad ways. That's a choice. I can accept it. I can figure out, can I just be okay with it? Can I be okay that my yard's okay, but that person has, you know, a hippopotamus in their yard and, you know, pythons and, and overgrown heads. If I can, maybe that's, is that, is that okay? Can I accept it? Can I just have grace? Now, do I need to block it? And I'm going to put a fence up. Mm. I can't, I just, I can't handle it. I'm going to block it. So at least I can just get it out of my mind. Um, or do I just move? Um, yeah, those are all options. I, I want to ask one more though, back to the change aspect. Is it fa- No, this is just a question. Is there ever a place to say, maybe I could help them clean up? Do they want help cleaning up? Well, is I have that, a- okay. This is a great, a great feed in story. I have an uncle who he wakes up in the morning, he goes down, he he goes down the block, he picks up all the trash on the street. If anybody left any trash out, he'll pull people's garbage cans back. He will cut his grass and his neighbor to the left of him. He'll cut their grass. If there is a single parent on the street, he may cut their grass or something like that. So, and he says it, I want to live in a, you know, I want my street to look a certain way. So he has really taken it upon himself to be the neighborhood cleanup crew of one. Now there are times where he gets a little frustrated and he's like, oh no, her kids are old enough to help. So he gets a little, (laughs) then he'll, you know, he'll go and talk to the kids and he'll say, you know, your mom is at work. You should, you know, so he has, he has his whole system of doing it. And that is his way to be able to live in the way that he wants to live with people who don't have the same value system as him. Okay. So there's, so there's maybe a place there, but to outside of that cleaning up or trying to help. And then of course you may have the neighbor who's got a fence up and they don't want you to touch their yard or they're going to shoot you. So mm-hmm. you are not helping them clean up. So then back to, do we just, again, accept the negative feelings, live with the negative feelings, um, live in those, or do, do we find a way to in grace, just accept and be okay with that person? Do we try to put a block up or do we move? Cause you know, we're in big, we're in deep water now as people look at their relationships and go, can I manage it or do I've got, have I got to remove myself? Doing nothing is never the right solution. I haven't seen it as effective because doing nothing is probably what we've already been doing. (laughs) Just trying to, Oh, I just need to accept this. I need to accept this. And sometimes we don't, we actually need to do something. We don't need to accept any more. We need to do something. And that doing something sometimes is moving. That doing something sometimes is saying, you will not say this thing to me anymore. That doing something sometimes is 
you know, maybe not coming outside as much like that doing something is all the stuff that you can control. It's not always trying to get this person to think exactly like you about this situation. When we think about families, there is such a rich history of things that may happen, like gossiping in the family, right? Like if everyone is talking about all of these family members, maybe your personal protest is not to join in. (laughs) You know, it's like, they like to do this. You don't have to join in. You can excuse yourself from the room. You can say things like, you know, hey, I don't want to talk about that person. What's going on with you? Like there are a lot of things that you can personally do. You can't change them if they enjoy the behavior, if they get something from it or they feel more connected. But you can say, eh, makes me feel icky. Don't want to do it. So it's again, back to that, not changing them, but there's place to say, look, if we're going to be in relationship with each other, I can't, I, I will ask you to refrain from X to modify uh, something mm-hmm. or, or even just to, or even, even that just to refrain. I'm not asking you to change, but mm-hmm. talk about that with someone who can handle it or who's okay with mm-hmm. it. That, mm-hmm. that feels better. Well, you know, the last part of your book is, is growing and there's a lot in that that's hard to do justice to even here, but I, I appreciate the beginning of it. Just saying that we're not going to, that idea of, I'm just going to get over it. Can I just get over it? Um, that's kind of the doing nothing back to what you just talked mm-hmm. about. I spent a lot of years there. Can I just get past it? Can I just take a pill? So I don't think about it. Doesn't, I wish it just didn't bother me, but it does. And if it does, mm-hmm. then I've got to figure out a way to do it with this person outside of now I'm assuming that, you know, growing now we could grow individually by leaving a situation, but we're not going to grow in the relationship. So in the ones that we are going to say, we're going to stick with them. We're not going to get rid of it. We're not going to leave. How do we grow? And it felt like some of the key, some of the highlights in there, can we reframe the relationship? Can we reframe our, in your words, our belief about that person and, and really even our expectations about that person and I don't know if you wrote this or, or if it was just, again, my, my own working in the material of saying, and then from that, can I have grace and acceptance for the person? Is that possible? Mm-hmm. Is that yeah. a fair encapsulation? Yeah. You know, sometimes we are trying to get people to be what we want them to be. You know, I I think about sibling relationships sometimes. People may say, I want my sister to be like my best best friend. Mm. She's she's not best friend material. She's just your sister. (laughs) So how how do you live with her and all of her stuff is just being your sister? She's not going to be more thoughtful. She's not going to, you know, like, eh. This is the relationship. How do you live with this relationship? So often we're trying to recreate a different relationship instead of accepting the actual relationship, the actual person. Yeah. Oh, my father doesn't say I love you. Okay. Well, we have the information we need. (laughs) He doesn't say it. Can you make him say it? Maybe you could start saying it to him and eventually he'll say it. But I don't know if you can... maybe make him initiate? No, you can't. But there are a lot of things that that you can do. It doesn't, how else does this, does your father show love? What other things that can you do to maybe 
initiate the conversations around feelings and love and these sort of things. And and I think some so often we put the work in the other person's up for the other person when they don't have an issue. They don't have an issue with what's happening. We have the issue. We have a problem with what we're not getting or what's happening mm-hmm. in the situation. So we are the folks to change it. It's not these people who are okay with everything that's happening. Some people enjoy chaos. Some people don't even notice the neglect and dysfunction. As great as this book is, some people won't read it and they really, really need to. Mm-hmm. So so it's not like everybody is on the same page of like seeking this, you know, certain level of guidance or being enlightened. Some people are okay with who they are, even if they aren't great people. And so because you want to change and you want something different, shouldn't you be the person to make the changes? Yeah. And I do want to pull out, it was significant to me how you addressed somewhat the removing the person from the role, Mm -hmm. just as you did with the sister. She's your sister, but she may not be best friend material. This is your father, but you may not receive affection from them mm-hmm. just because they're your father and kind of taking that out. I think we all go through, I hope we do uh, that age of awareness of realizing our parents are not supernatural. They're not gods. They're not, they may or may not be great people. They're just people. They're just people. Mm-hmm. And, and it almost hurts because we want them to be something supernatural and yet they're just people. But now as we look at those roles, whether you've got a spouse, a sibling, uh, parents, extended family, and even, you know, aspects of friendship that there's a role there, but that doesn't mean that that person, they're just a person. They're Mm -hmm. just a person. And and that feels important, uh, to me, even, even gosh, doing that on our own, that I'm a, you know, a husband, father, business owner, whatever, but take all those away. What, what am I? Uh, Mm -hmm. feels, feels healthy. Well, the book, you know, I, I want everybody to get it. And of course, everybody's thinking too, kind of what you said, how many people do you wish would read it that are in your lives? Uh, so there's your, we just missed Christmas, you can give everybody a Valentine's (laughs) gift and get them the book and say, look, I want a better relationship with you. Here is a book. What a great book to work through. So that's what my wife and I talked about was how about if we walk through this together and kind of get Mm -hmm. honest with each other and our relationship, um, together and find more connection points and even to here, find where we don't connect and where do we connect with other people that fulfill those roles. But man, thank you for being back on here, Nedra. Thanks for the work that you've done to, uh, I don't know if there's more important of an issue right now. Again, as we look at, yeah, diseases of despair and relationships is our key to happiness as Robert Waldinger talks about. So yeah, but if we're going to do, we got to do them well, they're not happy Mm -hmm. at all. They're actually absolutely horrendous and terrifying if we don't do them well. And that's what you're giving us the tools for. So, uh, I'm grateful, honored. Thanks for letting me be a student, student number one, at least from this show. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. I have been ruminating on this talk with Nedra over the past week. I've talked about some of the issues with my friends, my wife, my kids. It's a work in progress for me. It will be for all of us. I don't naturally have a desire to dig into relational issues, but I do want great relationships that fulfill me. And I want to fulfill those people that I care about. So I can't just wing it. I can't just rely on my good intent. 
and I do have to make an effort to modify my behavior and interactions, be myself, but work to bring forth the best of myself for each individual person in a way that meets them well. Again, Nedra's new book, I really encourage you to get into. It's called Drama Free, A Guide to Managing Unhealthy Family Relationships. Thank you, as always, for choosing to tune into this self-helpful podcast and helping make it one of the top in its category. If you got value, it'd be great if you would leave a review. And of course, most, I hope that you will talk about what you heard here with the people you care about. I sincerely hope I've helped you help yourself so that you can help others. Mm-hmm.